Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, arts and society. I'm Steve Bloomfield, Deputy Editor of Prospect Magazine. This week we're talking to the American writer Thomas Chatterton Williams about his curious approach to race. Is there really such a thing as a post-racial society? A regular contributor to the New York Times Magazine, who's also written for us here at Prospect a couple of times, Thomas's new book, Self-Portrait in Black and White, is a memoir of his time growing up as a mixed-race child in New Jersey and charts how he came to now identify as what he describes an ex-black man. Our arts and books editor Samir Rahim talks to Thomas about growing up in America, what he's learned from the legacy of slavery and whether in these divided political times one can really transcend race. But before that, I'm here with Samir himself. Samir, how are you? Not too bad, how are you? Yeah, I'm not doing too bad. We're, uh, what, now in uh, week four of uh, lockdown here in London and uh, the sun is shining. I can see I can see blossom on the trees uh, outside my window. I've gone for my daily walk. You know, it's, it's not the end of the world yet, is it, Samir? Not yet, no, although, well, you know, there's still a few weeks to run before that might happen. But... Um, you spoke to Thomas um, what feels now like in a different world but was only actually a few weeks ago uh, pre-lockdown when he came to uh, came to the UK on a book tour and um, why were you keen to talk to him I think he's a really interesting writer um so he, in the book as, as as we discussed he thinks about the categories of race and how we might sort of think about them and transcend them the book's actually had quite a lot of um uh negative attention in America, particularly from black American writers who feel like he's sort of um, trying to uh, pass for white or sort of escape from racial categories that actually um, are necessary in some ways, even though we know them to be in some ways fictional. It was quite interesting. We did we ran a piece last year, I think, about Angela Saini, the, uh, the science writer, about the ways in which well-meaning attempts by uh, doctors to describe the racial differences, ascribe sort of medical complaints to, to, to racial differences, might actually be reinforcing stereotypes. And we've seen it quite a bit with this, uh, with COVID-19 as well, haven't we? Because it's been noticeable that quite a lot of the people who've died, particularly in the NHS, um, have been um, Asian or been from ethnic minorities. Now, whether that's to do with the fact that 
you know, if you go into a hospital, particularly in London, you'll know that it's a very multicultural environment. And a lot of ethnic minorities work in the NHS. Or whether it's to do with um, households collecting in a particular way, or whether it's to do with the fact that the virus affects people in the way a lot of other illnesses do, based on sort of socioeconomic background as well. And then there's another argument that it's oh, it's something sort of, maybe it's something genetic or, or whatever. So I think it's really interesting to explore this category that we're given when, you know, when we become self-conscious about whether we're Asian or white or, or black, and, and to what extent those categories really have meaning. In terms of here in the UK, the, those categories have have changed somewhat over the past thirty odd years, haven't they? You know, in the in the nineteen eighties, you know, think of groups like um, South or Black Sisters. It was very much if you were Asian, you identified politically as black in a way that wouldn't necessarily be the same today. Yeah, the idea of black being a sort of general political category has sort of gone away. There's definitely a sense of Asianness, and now, again, Muslimness is this other sort of category, which is sort of weirdly racialized as well. And, and now we've recently, in the last five, ten years, we've had person of colour come in as a sort of replacement for that, as a sort of catch-all term for anyone who is an ethnic minority. You know, it's funny, with the when you go to the doctor, I remember when I, when I started having to tick those forms... Um, about what your racial origin is. And yeah, I sort of slightly resented it because I felt like, does this really matter? But then I thought, well, maybe they say it matters, so it does. And I always sort of picked Asian other. Um, And then suddenly East African Asian came on there as well uh, as a category. And I started to pick that. It seemed to be very important because that's my background. But then, you know, genetically speaking, that's completely irrelevant because, you know, we're all from the same village, you know, family's pretty much all from the same village back in Gujarat, genetically. But maybe you feel like, because you're at the doctors, you're ticking this category because uh, it's to do with your treatment. But actually, it's more to do with, you know, are East African Asians coming to the doctor more because they have certain health issues to do with heart disease or whatever? Yeah, personally speaking, I've always found race to be a sort of very funny category, uh, one that I don't really... I don't really accept in the same way as Thomas Chatterton Williams does. Um, but at the same time, I think your identity is not always something that you can form yourself. I think where I sort of differ from him is that I don't feel the need to particularly declare myself beyond race because identity is always a negotiation between you as a person and how other people around you perceive you and, and how you are. Um and um, the idea of just purely self-identifying, you know, that it's almost like a fantasy that we can sort of get beyond the categories that people uh, impose on us. What you can do with them is sort of play around with them, not take them as seriously as um, as uh, uh, as some other people do and um, in- investigate them. But in, in no way, I feel like, should they be defining of you as a person? Okay, Samir, we'll leave it there just for now. Samir Rahim, thank you very much indeed. And after this very, very short break, we'll hear Samir's chat with Thomas Chatterton-Williams. Thomas, welcome to the Prospect interview. Thanks for coming here. Thanks for having me. Um, So the issue of race and indeed racism has been talked about as almost never before in uh, cultural circles. And I found fascinating reading your memoir essay, 
self-portrait in, in black and white. And it seems that you take a slightly different approach to some of the other works that have been around. You talk about moving on and beyond labels of black and white, um, as you say in your subtitle, unlearning race. And what do you um, mean by that? Well, I mean that I don't think that we can really uh, transcend racism so long as we hold on to the um, categories it's created, the categories um, of hierarchy and 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 really, um, you know, oppression through through slavery and through the collision of Europe and Africa and the trans transatlantic uh, slave trade. So I think that these are these are kind of irredeemable designations. I think we have to find a new language and 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 really kind of embrace a. Um, transcendent humanism, as naive as that seems and as difficult as that would be. I just think that these are um, these categories are tainted and can't be untainted. Tell us a bit more about your own upbringing and, you know, the racial trauma in America that is, is just seems so ever present. Sure. I, mean, I grew up in New Jersey uh, in the 1980s and 90s, the son of a, of, of a black man from the segregated South who's uh, old enough to be my grandfather. My father was born in Texas in 1937, and really grew up in a in a different country than I did. Um, he didn't have civil rights until he was well into adulthood, um, and you know his grand his own grandfather was born just on the knife's edge of uh, of emancipation and on, in 1865, on the year that uh, slaves were emancipated. So um, when I was coming up, uh, I still had this kind of idea of race. My mother is a white evangelical Christian from Southern California. Um, when I was coming up, there was still very much the idea of hypodescent or the one drop rule that a single drop of black blood makes you black because you cannot be white. This is, you know, it's plantation logic. It, it really obtained in not just the white community, but in the black community too. And in many ways was a source of, of solidarity that I really appreciated. But what it meant effectively was that um, my brother and I, we never questioned that we were we were black, period. It wasn't even until the year 2000 that there was the option to choose more than one race on the census. So Barack Obama has spoken very eloquently about this, you know, with one option to choose, you choose black and you don't really think very hard about it. And, you know, the culture didn't really challenge that the white kids that we grew up around didn't think that we were white and the black kids uh, that we knew we're kind of used to accepting and interacting with an enormous variety of physical appearances designated black. So I grew up with a kind of uh, untroubled racial identity well until adulthood. Um, I dated a variety of, uh, of girls uh, from different ethnic backgrounds, mostly not white. So I kind of had in my mind that my children would be mixed, but they would be fundamentally black too, because a single drop of black blood makes you black. It wasn't until I moved to Paris and um, had a child with my white wife that the possibility of rethinking these categories really forced itself on me. I mean, my, my daughter's physical appearance kind of destroyed my notion of the one drop rule, but it didn't make me think that she was white. I think the crucial thing is that it just first and foremost thrust the fiction of race into my consciousness in a way that like my interracial uh, home had not. Interesting you mentioned Obama there because he's uh, one of those figures who, just from reading his memoirs, it's almost as if he decided to become black at one point and like he had the option of going into a different kind of world. But he, he definitely, you know, he embraced black culture and uh, he married a black woman and he went to Chicago and it seemed like he really wanted to become that. But 
but he always seemed also in a way distanced from it because he knew it was something that he had become rather than he was simply just born with. Obama is a very fascinating figure because he kind of reveals uh, the performative aspect of race that we all participate in, but with him it's a bit clearer. Um, many uh, black writers and commentators when he first uh, came on the national scene did not accept him as, as black, actually. Uh, Stanley Crouch wrote a column in the Daily News arguing that he was not black because he had no experience with the, with the American slave trade. His father came volitionally from Kenya and studied at Harvard. He was raised only by whites and raised in a part of the country that has almost no African-American presence. And he kind of, because of his physical appearance, he kind of um, was able to pass as a black American. And then he married into a black American family and, and elected to be in a black American community in Chicago. But, you know, most of the time when we're talking about race, we're really talking about things like ethnicity and class and culture, traditions. And these are things that have nothing to do with blood and skin. I mean, there's an element of he looks black, but what he's doing is actually just performing race in a way that's recognizable to us. In a way, he could sort of slip between being, you know, very sort of patrician and sort of white in inverted covers. And then when he was with a black audience, I remember him, you know, doing, you know, uh, a funeral oration uh, after the uh, the Dylan Roof attack on the, the black church. He definitely sort of almost became more black at that in that moment. He could sort of. He, yeah, he sung Amazing words. Grace. He did it very well. But that has nothing to do with either his genes or the way that he was raised. That's a that's a cultural performance that he participated in. I think there's a lot in the figure of Obama to make us question why we think categories are uh, are not porous. So is it fair to say now that you personally would now not identify as as black? I identify with uh, with black cultural traditions. I know that part of the people I'm descended from are so designated especially in America. And I'm very proud of that. And I don't think you have to give up uh, traditions or music or community to simply say that you're no longer going to participate in the all-American skin game that really always ends up hurting people who are deemed black. So so when asked in a serious way, I would say that um, I'm an ex-black man, but that's kind of a provocation. That doesn't mean that I've changed my social group or tried to start being white. In fact, the idea of unlearning race really rests on not on black people who are descended by and large in America from both Europeans and Africans. Um, it, It depends not on black people rejecting race alone. It really depends on white people realizing that they've been raced as white and then thinking seriously about how they might reject whiteness as a construct. So, you know, we are talking a lot about the idea of race. Um, There's, you know, and when people talk about it, they say, well, you know, racism still exists. You know, whether this is a false binary or whatever, you know, for African-Americans, let's let's say it's still not a fair system and that we can't reject the label of race, even though it's a fiction, uh, until we've um, got rid of racism uh, itself. What would you say to that? Well, I said that I would say that we're we're stuck and we're never going to move past. I mean, you. I think that it's you have to be able to do two things at once. You you really have to be able to understand, fight, reject, challenge racism in society as it affects specific groups, and also be able to keep in mind that the society you want is one that doesn't create and reproduce and reify illusions such as race, because we know that there's no scientific basis for it. We really do know that, although. The idea of bio race is coming back into vogue with some of the you know the far right thinkers that are hoping that they'll find something in um, genetic research that will 
justify their, you know, their white supremacist ideas. But uh, the consensus is there's no biological basis for this. So why do we reify it? And if we're reifying it because some groups are oppressed based on illusions such as race, that's just doubling down on the illusion. So I think we have to be able to, you can't stumble into a better world that you can't first envision. So this book is not saying that, you know, you read this book, you stop thinking of yourself as white or, or, or Asian or black, and then the world is immediately made better. This book is kind of um, imaginative labor. It's asking for the very first steps, try to think of a world without race and try to move closer to it and try to reject Rather than simply reproducing categories, try to think critically about them and reject them. It's interesting because we've in this conversation we've been pretty I've been pretty sort of loose in talking about black and African American mm-hmm. as if they're interchangeable. And certainly the logic of what you're talking about with the term black, which could you know, it could be anyone who's grown up in East Africa, South Africa, South America, United States. I mean, it is a very broad term. The term African American though does have if if not um it's more specific, isn't it? You know, there's a musical tradition, a literary tradition, an it's artistic an tradition. Yeah. You know, there is something about being African American that seems distinctive and describable. So, do you feel like you're leaving that or, or or moving away from that as you reject these labels? Not at all. I mean, the African American tradition is physically paradoxical. It, it comprises people that look like white Anglo-Saxon wasps and people that look like they're essentially Senegalese. You know, it's the most physically diverse population in the country, if not the world. So um, the idea that, you know, the idea that we have to hold on to some racial uh, umbrella that that lumps us all together, I think is not necessary. Of course, there's ancestry, there's there's cultural traditions. And I think that those things can be kind of respected and revered without the illusion that that there's something racial. For example, when I was doing my own genetic ancestry research even though i'm my my social identity is black in america the fact is that most of my genetic uh, makeup is from northern europe you know so so the idea that there's there's a genetic basis in my racial identity is um is oversimplistic to the point of, I think of being confusing and actually like harmful. Not I, I want to insist not that I'm saying that what I actually am is white. I'm saying that these things don't really exist and nothing is so neat and uncomplicated as a pure white or a pure black identity. Most black people have I mean on average in America blacks are only 80% uh, West African descended, and they're basically 20% uh, Northern European, usually white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Millions of white people walk around with a significant uh, African DNA that they're not even aware of because there was so much mixing going on. America, I mean, the conversation might be a bit different in Europe and other parts of the world, but in America, I can say with authority that we're fundamentally a mongrel nation, always have been, and that we kind of, we stay in this lukewarm bath uh, of ideas about pure racial groups that require us to kind of ignore what's what's actually there. So this idea of white privilege, which has come up a lot recently, um, and, and some people might say, and say that, you know, you're in a way you're aspiring to that, you're aspiring to get some of the privileges that being white brings with it. I wonder though, whether it's more that you're sort of aspiring to the level of neutrality that white people just naturally have in a white-dominated society. So it's not really the whiteness. It's more like you're taken as you are. That's exactly right. I mean, many white people, especially white people like, say, my mother, who 
are Protestant, who are not considered ethnic whites, whose family has been in the country since the beginning, they basically think of themselves as not having race. That's the default mode, that, that everybody who is not like them is to a degree raced and, and, and kind of a deviation from the norm. Of course, their race is made like everybody else's. But the first time I experienced what that must feel like to move through society this way was actually when I moved to Paris and my race is not the most salient thing about me. Many people don't even really understand what my race is. And the thing that they really see first and foremost and that defines me is my Americanness, my nationality. And that's kind of like, in some ways, that feels a lot like what it would be like. Being American in Europe or other parts of the world is what it must feel like to be white in America. And many people who are not white in America never really felt fully what it is to be American in America. You know, James Baldwin has written so well about the fact that like, he didn't actually know what it was like to be American until he got to France because in America he was just an N-word, you know? Um, I can't claim that my time in America was was an assault on my dignity the way it was uh, in other eras or for people like James Baldwin, but I know that I felt that sense of neutrality when I left the country, and this is what I think actually we would want to aspire to. And, and I reject the idea that we should try to aspire to reproduce a kind of elitism or white privilege. But it, just getting rid of this kind of racialized identity would, would be the end point. That would be a better society, as far as I can tell. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Do you think that white people are becoming more aware of the constructed nature of the racial identity that they have is is a positive thing because then they can think about it and move through it? Or, you know, but then, of course, there's a danger that it just becomes a Trumpian identity yeah. point. I mean, yeah, when I was a couple of years ago, when I was writing an article on the French far right thinkers who were inspiring the American alt right, like um, people like Richard Spencer, who, who coined the term alt right, I was interviewing Spencer and he was saying that yeah, he, he's frustrated that most white people walk around kind of feeling neutral. And what he wants to do is awaken their racial identity. And he wants them to understand that they have the superior racial identity. Of course, that's not what 
what I would find uh, desirable. But I do think that white people actually do have to make a two-step move that non-whites typically don't have to make because non-whites are very aware that they've been raced in society. But white people do have to become cognizant of, of the way their race is made so that they then might take a much more critical stance towards it. I don't think you can make the move to rejecting race if you haven't gone through understanding what your race means and what it implies and what privileges it um, obtains in the society. I mean, how difficult is it to make this quite sort of nuanced argument when, you know, we do have Trump in the White House just um, appealing quite nakedly to racial antagonisms? Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's a bit difficult because the more one group becomes aware and interested in its own tribal identity, whether it's racial or whatever, the more that uh, increases that feeling in other groups. And so a rise of kind of white nationalism and even kind of like that, not quite white nationalism, but the kind of rhetoric that Trump engages in that, that, that kind of speaks to a white identity, um, a rise in that makes other groups, makes blacks, makes Latinos, makes Muslims, kind of a lot less interested in rejecting the category and it makes it like so you have a kind of anti-racist rhetoric that becomes more and more essentialist in America right now where people say you know what I'm not trying to transcend race I'm not interested in the kind of conversation that even Martin Luther King was trying to have I am this group and that is what defines me and it's the category alone that matters and can't be transcended and so it's kind of a vicious cycle and I think that, you know, somebody has to move first. So I think that even with Trump antagonizing and with the kind of disgusting um, internet organizing that you have going on uh, for the racist right, I still think that the game can't be won by digging in deeper. You've written quite critically of writers like Ta-Nehisi Coates, who's been sort of the emblem of, in a way, a kind of more, you could say, entrenched or radical black identity. Um uh, do you think that um, his contributions to the arguments and, and, and others like him are, are helping things or, or, or hindering? Um, well, Coates is now... There's other writers who have come up after him who are much more rigid than he was. Uh, Coates is an interesting guy because in 2013, he blurbed this book, Racecraft, The Soul of American Inequality by Barbara and Karen Fields, which I quote in my book as well, which is basically, the, the argument is that uh, race doesn't exist, but racecraft is made by all of us every day. And, you know, um, it's similar to witchcraft. There's no such thing as witches, but in a society that believes some people are witches, you can die and it can harm you. And that's how race kind of functions. And Coates was very um, keen on that book. And he kind of felt that it challenged him in the best way to reject categories that he had taken for granted. That's a kind of suppleness of thought that even since 2013, we've lost with thinkers like Ibram X. Kendi and other people like that who don't really, I don't know if it's because they feel like it's uh, beside the point or what, but they don't really want to get into the conversation about race not really existing. It's just, it's a fact. And, 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 and that's what we have to deal with is the fact on the ground. So I think Coates has kind of made the argument, I take issue with the lack of agency he attributes to blacks and non-whites and the kind of all-encompassing agency that he, and the power that he thinks inherently comes with whiteness. But I think that he was someone who advanced the conversation on race and, and, and gave it a space in the mainstream discourse that it had not had prior to his rise. So he's kind of made a space for all of us to, to talk more than we were 
net good, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because just thinking about my own experience, um, growing up as, uh, you know, we used to be called British Asians, right. people people like me, in the 1990s. And there was this sort of vague nebulous sense that um, you were, or, or you were just Indian or Pakistani, um, even though you were actually born, born in Britain. But 9-11 really changed all that completely. So your religion then became much more defined about who you were. So then basically became a Muslim after 9-11. So Muslimness for me became the defining aspect of my own identity. So we have a mayor in London now, uh, Sadiq Khan, who is always described as a British Muslim mayor. He's never described as a British Asian mayor, um, which I think is a very sort of strange thing. So these categories do slip and slide depending on politics, essentially. That's right. And uh, at, at one point in time, I mean, Kanan Malik was explaining that they a lot of Asians consider themselves or call themselves black, and that was a yeah. political term that they embraced, right? Yeah, so the 70s and 80s, the term black, for example, in groups like the Southall Black Sisters, black became this sort of political category where anyone who was of any kind of ethnic minority would would pour, would pour themselves into. Sometimes we have terms like, um, we've sort of adopted a person of colour a bit, mm -hmm. but it's always been, it's been a bit more uncertain. It's not, it's always felt a bit American, that term. But certainly in terms of um, discussions of people's identity and the sort of the, the, as it were, the threat level of that identity, terms like Muslim do have more sort of power, as it were. And then working out how, what you feel in relation to that becomes quite, quite complicated, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, person of color, since you mentioned it, is a term that absolutely drives me crazy because it's abstract to the point of meaninglessness. It basically takes whites who are not much of the world's population and says that everybody who's not white is the same thing, a person of color because they're not white. And it lumps in people with extraordinarily different ethnicities, backgrounds, cultural traditions, religious traditions. And it basically says that we have the same goals. I mean, there's an interesting movement happening in America right now, a grassroots kind of movement uh, that's largely based on like a hashtag Eidos, American Descendants of Slavery, which seeks to kind of split apart this kind of person of color and even black um, monolithic identity and say that you have an extraordinarily different experience if you are descended from southern slaves in America than a person who comes over willfully from Nigeria or from Jamaica or, from, or than a, a Latino immigrant has. And that is kind of at the expense of descendants of American slaves that these categories get kind of ambiguous and confused. So, you know, to give an example, Harvard can say that it wants diversity and it can say that it has so many black students. But if you look at the numbers, very few of those students would be what they call ADOs. A lot of them would be coming from kind of privileged immigrant families. And so you have to wonder what this, what, do, what does it mean to give a Nigerian son of doctors who chose to come to the country a leg up simply because the melanin in the skin is supposed to link them to an experience of oppression that happened to a specific community of people and really doesn't have anything to do with, with blood and skin. You're talking about slavery then. That is the, that's the sort of central issue in America. It is. Really, is it? It is. I mean, and there's been chat about, you know, I think Coates talked about, you know, reparations or some kind of economic uh, uh, payback for slavery. Do you think that's something that could be helpful? Or I do, actually. I think that um, to get to a kind of world where racial differences and the physical appearances that are supposed to tell you so much about what people's lives are like, to get to a world where that would all matter less, I think that 
material equality would be very instrumental. And I think that, you know, a specific community of people over a specific number of centuries was harmed in a very particular way in America. It's not impossible to understand who these individuals are, who their ancestors were. And, you know, in my father's lifetime, it's very easy to measure what it means to be from a group that was specifically locked out of the housing market in ways that other groups were not. Uh, you can put a number roughly on that. I don't know what the number is. There, Sandy Darity at Duke University is uh, currently putting together proposals for what reparations could look like in practical terms. But the idea that there's a kind of ambient racism that affects anybody with pigmentation in their skin um, and that everybody should partake in that repair, to me, I think really misses the point and kind of racializes something that it isn't race. It's, it's, it's a group of people. <laughs> yeah, in, many, in so many ways, race obscures what we're really trying to talk about. And it is slavery. And slavery created race. But it's not the same thing to just have dark skin because then any Melanesian would be black. And that, we know that that's not the case. Yes, that's interesting. You think you say, for you, the logic of race was created by this transatlantic slave trade. In America, it absolutely was. And in the Americas, it was made differently. In Brazil, I'm fascinated by Brazil because in Brazil, they have the opposite of the one drop rule. A drop of white blood makes you not black in Brazil. So the soccer superstar Neymar can say, even though he's darker than me with curlier hair than mine, he can say, I'm not black. I don't, I don't experience racism. I'm not black. My dad's black, but I'm not black. You know, but in America, he would very much be made black. Race, the way it was made, the way blackness was made, made changed over time in America, too. It used to be, at first, in certain colonies, it was that um, race flowed through the father. So, you know, if your father was a white slave owner and your mother was a slave, you were not a slave, therefore you were not black. Then at some point, very early on, it kind of, it, it switched and it flowed through the mother because that came down to questions of inheritance, uh, which children could have claims on property. And it came down to the fact that a lot of um, slave masters were raping their slaves. And so therefore there were more slaves when they, when they did that as opposed to more dependents. It's arbitrary is, is my point. But when you look at who to repair, it's not arbitrary at all. I mean, I think that it makes a big difference. And so what we talk about when we talk about black means that other ethnicities don't participate in the identity exactly the same way in America. And just taking it back to your own, um, your own family, I mean, will you be giving your children the choice of what, how they identify or just explaining to them your heritage or, or, or will it just not be something that you... No, I, we try to talk. My daughter is six. My son's only 20 months. But we, both of my children are extremely fair-skinned, very blonde, very blue-eyed. And um, society would easily allow them to just have a white identity with no questions asked. We try to talk very honestly and openly with my daughter. She would call herself mixed, what the French say, call métisse, which was a step. At first, she didn't see that. But now she, she realizes her grandfather is what she calls brown. Um, she calls her other grandfather pink because he drinks rosé and gets kind of flushed. She doesn't understand why that skin is, ca is called white. And she doesn't understand why my father would be called black because he's brown. Um, and she really doesn't understand why I would be called black because she says I'm beige. But she understands that there's skin diversity in her family. And she understands that some people in the street have very dark skin and she might think of them as black. But that's not the kind of difference that st sticks out in her mind as being extraordinarily important. My concern is that you can't make your kids see things the way you want them to on any issue. My concern is that I would feel that I've failed 
if she just kind of grew into an uncritical white identity that the that the world makes very easy for people like her to to have i don't want her to feel guilt either though i don't want her to feel um i think there's something very dangerous about making her think that blackness is a kind of disability that she should feel sorry for she f- should feel sorry for one of her grandparents you know i want her to just understand the diversity of her background and to understand what it what it is what it means and 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 that she is actually not white and really no one is Thomas Chesterton, thank you. Thank you so much. That's all from us this week. Thank you very much for joining us on the Prospect interview. In the meantime, it is the last week of our paywall-free website. Please go to prospectmagazine.co.uk for your free access to absolutely everything we have ever written over the past 25 years. Uh, the paywall comes back up on the 20th of April. Uh, it's worth pointing out, it's it's a metered paywall. So even then, you can still get some stuff for free. Um, but we will then encourage you gently to uh, pay for a subscription if you enjoyed the prospect interview please do leave us a rating and a review it really does help other listeners to find us rebecca lou is our producer my name is steve bloomfield goodbye stay safe and see you next week Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.